Welcome to the DL. I am your host, Tyler Robertson, also the CEO and founder of Diesel Laptops. And this is the podcast show where we talk about everything to do with the heavy duty truck and repair and equipment industry. So before I even start this, though, I just want to make one little announcement. I know you don't ever get a seer. I mention her name once in a while. But Shauna, who's behind the scenes here, did get married. They actually drove across the country all the way from South Carolina to Vegas. They're both, uh, let's just say, collector car enthusiasts, drove all the way out there, got married, had some adventures. So Shauna, glad to get you back. Congratulations on, on getting married. I know those are... Huge life events you'll remember for the rest of your life. I remember mine 20 years ago, which I just celebrated. So it's a it's a fun adventure to say the least. Uh, but with all that said, uh, it's not too often I get really industry leaders in here, people that have been around, people that know the space. And the gentleman I'm going to introduce you here in a second. Most of you, if you're involved in heavy duty parts at all, you already know him. Uh, he's the former president and CEO of of uh, heavy duty uh, of HDMA. Heavy Duty Manufacturers Association, and he's one of only 14 members recently inducted into the Heavy Duty Aftermarket Industry Hall of Fame. So, Tim Krause, welcome to the DL. Hey, thanks, Tyler. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. Well, and in full disclosure, we joined HDMA a couple of years back, so you did a terrific job. And actually, the person we used to work with on your side, Beth, now actually works for us. So it's kind of like this full circle thing, I feel like, going around here. But you you retired last year, and it was like this virtual thing we did and everything. How how has it been? You know, one year later, like I, I've always talked to people that retired. My dad had a bunch of employees. I was growing up like, oh, they'd come back after the office six months later. What are you doing? They're like, well, I'm fishing, kind of bored. What's going on? So I'm I'm always curious. How how is life going? How how are things happening for you one year in? Well, we uh, we sold our place in North Carolina and moved down to uh, our place in Florida. Florida uh, full-time. Uh, so that's been really nice. And uh, the uh, weather, of course, uh, is uh, wonderful down here. And three of our kids, uh, four, four of my kids, uh, two of my wife's and, and my kids are uh, up in Minnesota. Uh, so when it was 81 degrees here uh, a few weeks ago, it was uh, 15 below zero there. So that part was kind of fun. Um, but, uh, the, the weather is awesome here until you get into the middle of summer and then it's like North Carolina summers and very hot, but I get to, uh, still interact with a lot of the people in the industry and a lot of my former members and a lot of, uh, particularly with a lot of the board members, uh, and former board members of HDMA. And then, uh, surprisingly enough, I wasn't sure how I was perceived in the distributor community, but I've got quite a few people that, uh, that I've been in contact with. Uh, relative to that. So that has, that part's been kind of fun. The, uh, the tough part about retiring anybody that's out there, I waited five years longer than I should have. Uh, now I realize that, uh, but is uh, uh, trying to go from fifth gear down to first gear uh, is, uh, is about like trying to do it from 70 miles an hour. Uh, you can do it if you let the clutch out really slow. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a, it was a little bit of a little bit of a transition for me because I was so incredibly busy, kind of like you are uh, now all the time uh, when I was at HDMA and then getting down to the point where my most important uh, uh, events during the week are uh, Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, Mondays, I take out the actual garbage. Uh, Thursdays, I take out the garbage and the recycling. Uh, and I've got a few other things uh, that I have to do during the week, but uh, uh, that's a lot different than uh, having a pad in front of me that's got six things on it to do this morning 
uh, and uh, having my left ear, my hearing is finally coming back in my left ear after having my telephone up to my ear uh, for the last at least 25 years, constantly. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a little bit different, but uh, it's very relaxing. Uh, I have absolutely nothing but just the most fond memories of uh, everything that I did in the in the industry. And I was at HDAW last week, and I realized that I do have a, a, a few friends uh, because it was no different than when I was working. I couldn't make it 10, 15 feet without stopping and talking to somebody for 20 minutes or so. So it's been good. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about industry, right? You brought up HDAW. I was just there last week as well. Great event. Great to be back in person with everybody. I know it was virtual last year. Good to see it going the direction that it is. So you were with HDA, HDMA for about 18 years there. What I know 17, eight, 17 yeah. yeah. I mean, so can, can you explain everyone kind of there's HDMA, there's MEMA, there's heavy duty aftermarket week and heavy duty aftermarket dialogue. Like did all that exist when you first got in there or did things change and progress or what was the evolution there? Cause it's a, it's a great week long event that essentially is put on by several organizations. Sure. I'll start, I'll start with HDAW. Um, it did not exist until 2006 was the first year for it. I started at HDMA for, in uh, 2004, but in 2002, I was on the HDMA board of directors. And then we formed a group of aftermarket suppliers uh, and started working with a couple of people, Dave Shear from the truck parts and a couple of other guys on the concept of putting together HDAW and somehow or another, and I guess that's another story, but uh, Pete Joy talked me into taking the, uh, the job of executive director at HDMA. And when I started, the only thing I did for the first two years was work on uh, putting HDAW together. Uh, and uh, HDAW basically takes uh, probably right now in the neighborhood of 10 uh, annual meetings away from what used to be held uh, during other parts of the year. And those are now being held during heavy duty aftermarket week. So there's a lot of distributor and service organizations uh, as well as HDMA and the Auto Care Association, uh, uh, Automotive Warehouse Distributors Association, part of the Auto Care Association. Um, we too are, excuse me, we too, along with the Commercial Vehicles uh, Solutions Network, CBSN, are the three owners of HDAW. Uh, by owners, that means that we're the one ones that are responsible for coordinating everything. Of course, we've got all the financial responsibility for it, as well as uh, working on all the major mechanical uh, and content detail for all of it. And then there's a committee called the Joint Operating Committee, which is a couple of people from each of uh, uh, 10 different organizations um, that meet several times during the year, once or twice in person, and then usually conference calls, things of that nature, on putting the content for HDAW together. Uh, so. I worked very hard the whole time I was there at making sure that uh, the owners didn't, you know, kind of take over everything that was going on with HDAW and made sure that everybody's voice was heard uh, and that we were doing as many things as we could do to keep as much of the organization happy as possible uh, as far as the organization called the Joint Operating Committee, which is the heads of all of the other industry organizations. The buying group, uh, uh, there's three different buying groups that are involved. There's uh, several different distributor groups. Uh, the Association of Diesel Specialists just joined last year as uh, part of the Joint Operating Committee, um, and you're familiar with all of them. Uh, so we worked really, really hard to make sure that it was an attractive enough meeting that we wouldn't uh, end up, you know, with a bunch of them splintering off to the side. There have been a couple of little ones that have 
that have formed um, to the side of uh, HDAW, a couple of them with the members of the organization uh, of the Joint Operating Committee. But uh, uh, all in all, uh, I mean, you've been to it now. And, and I, by the way, distinctly remember talking you into going to it uh, at uh, at the heavy duty forum uh, meeting in, uh, I don't even remember what city it was in, but I've been in Sedang many cities. All I can remember is the hotel. I remember like, we're, you know, I remember you talking to me and I was like, well, I don't know. We kind of got this little parts thing. We're trying to figure it out. We, you know, we were just, I think, kind of feeling our way through the whole world. And it took us, our company, even from that point to today, a couple of years to really figure out, well, parts are actually in, in a very important piece of everything that goes on on the repair process because there's that huge lag between I have something broken, I figured it out, and now I got to go source my part. And there's just yeah. a lot of inefficiencies that that happen in that whole process. So what you've done for HDAW and just the industry in general was was really, really needed. It's consolidations, better communication, some new ways to talk to people and explore and, and all these things that need to happen. So before you went to work there 17 years ago, though, you worked at, I think, parts manufacturers, right? So how, do, how does one make the yeah. leap from parts manufacturers to I'm going to go help our entire industry be a better place? Well, I've, you know, I owned my own uh, service stations back in the in the 70s, uh, and I was going to night school at the same time at the University of Minnesota, and and uh, uh, I worked during the day, uh, and unless I had classes during the day, then I worked at night with a partner, um, and uh, I got to know the parts and service business real well through that. Uh, after the Arab oil embargo uh, was kind of all tied up, and my numbers looked really great, somebody came along and offered me an obscene amount of money for uh, my partnership uh, in the uh, uh, in the uh, the two Texaco stations, and I sold out. <laughs> and when I did that, uh, one of my primary suppliers was a friction distributor. Uh, went to work for them, and went around and called on uh, shops and um, <clears throat> dealerships and things like that, selling uh, uh, selling brakes and a lot of other parts. Um, in the process, uh, somehow or another, I attracted attention and was recruited. Uh, by a company that no longer exists uh, as a separate entity, McCord Gaskets, uh, and uh, went to work for McCord because I did know a thing or two about engines and all of that kind of stuff and uh, uh, worked for McCord for eight years. Uh, I was recruited away from McCord Gaskets uh, by Phillips and Temero Industries, uh, started there as a national sales manager in 1983. Uh, I left there in 1998 was recruited by a seal manufacturer, Tri-Seal, up in Hebron, Illinois, uh, and uh, moved up there, worked there for five years. But during the, the time that I was at Phillips and Temero Industries, as well as at Tri-Seal, I was very active in a lot of activities with the Heavy Duty Manufacturers Association. A lot of it on the uh, on the government affairs side of things, but uh, more in the uh, in the overall community, talking with suppliers, getting all kinds of ideas. I was fortunate in 1990 to be put into an organization or voted into an organization called the Heavy Duty Business Forum, uh, which is one of the uh, one of the big councils run by uh, HDMA. If Beth, by the way, hasn't tried talking you into uh, joining the Heavy Duty Business Forum, uh, she will try pretty soon. Uh, but that's a that's a group of 55 CEOs of member companies um, that get together a couple of times a year and exchange ideas. And the express purpose of it is to keep everybody informed on major trends but to make better executives out of everyone that uh, is involved in it. Uh, I benefited greatly from, from all of that. Also got quite a bit of exposure. I served on the board 
uh, for the, the business forum, which basically puts together the programs that they have uh, twice a year. And in doing that was asked to join the HDMA board of directors, which I did um, and uh, worked my way through uh, the chairs from secretary to vice chair to chairman. I uh, was chairman in 2000, I guess. And in 2001, uh, was in uh, in the process of handing the reins over to a new chairman who switched jobs and went to a different industry and somehow or another uh, probably during a cocktail party or something was talked into taking on another year as chairman so I served two years as chairman uh, and then after I left I thought finally that because that was like having this a second job <laughs> uh, after uh, after that um, I ended up on the chairman's, or, or I'm sorry, the uh, uh, the HDMA uh, chairman's advisory council, uh, which consisted of about three people, one of whom, and you probably know Pete Joy, uh, Pete uh, basically put the hard press on me to uh, consider taking the place of the retiring uh, executive director at HDMA. And I'd already been involved with them for 12, 13 years. Uh, I've been in the industry my whole career. Uh, if I did join HDMA, I was one of the few guys in the organization that uh, that had those credentials. But I did start in 2004 uh, at uh, at HDMA as the executive director. Uh, we had about 40 members uh, at that time. Uh, we were part of the larger organization, MEMA, the Motor Equipment Manufacturers Association, uh, which was basically made up of, uh, of park suppliers to the automotive industry, which included heavy duty. Uh, as well as light vehicle on both the aftermarket and the original equipment side. And my engagement in it was just a continuation of work that we had done on the board, uh, which was to separate HDMA, uh, the original equipment suppliers association, which is the light vehicle OEM side, uh, the automotive aftermarket suppliers association away uh, from one identity and have them as separate divisions of MEMA. <clears throat> and we successfully did that. And over a period of uh, 17 years that I was there, we quintupled the number of members that we had and the revenue that went along with that. Um, a lot of that had to do with HDAW and attracting people. Uh, but about half of my time was spent on, and HDMA's time was spent on the original equipment business, the other half on the aftermarket business. Um, so that's in kind of a nutshell, everything that, uh, uh, that I did during my career without getting too terribly long-winded, although so, I've never been accused of not being long-winded. Yeah. So, you know, we're working with some new organizations and they got, they got great intentions. They have a great cause and a great thing they want to do. And I, I think when I look at it, I know they're both struggling a little bit to grow their membership. And obviously you, you were able to do that with your organization over your 17 year career there. Is there any opinion or advice you'd give these younger organizations that are out there trying to grow and expand now that you've kind of been through that process? Well, I think that the, the biggest mistake everyone makes is, uh, well, it's a couple of things. One of them is being unintentionally uh, a little bit uh, disingenuous about what their actual goal uh, is as an overall organization. You know, they all come up with slogans and, catchphrases and things like that as to what it is that they do. Um, the other one is a lack of focus on what is it that you're good at. Um, and you've been very successful with your own company, uh, uh, you know, and not branching off in a whole lot of different directions and trying to do everything to keep everybody happy. You picked out 
what it was that you were aiming at with diesel laptops. That's pretty much what I did with HDMA. There were several problems that were going on at that particular time. Uh, there was some government affairs stuff, probably not the least of which was the 2004, 2007, and 2010 emissions regulations, which in retrospect was probably the overall industry largest engineering project that has ever occurred in the industry uh, to make everything compliant with what a bunch of people who uh, had a very low opinion of diesel trucks um, um, in, in the process, they did uh, they did actually clean things up quite a bit uh, with low sulfur diesel fuel and then all the re-engineering that had to take place on the engines. But we were actively involved in all of that. We did stall a few of those things uh, from going through too quickly. We didn't accomplish as much as we'd like to accomplish because most of it went into effect within a, a year or two after I started at HDMA. I was fortunate in that the same day that I started at HDMA, a new government affairs person started there and Ann Wilson, you've met Ann. Uh, Ann has uh, uh, a huge amount of experience in the industry. Uh, she was with the American Trucking Association for quite some time in government affairs there. Uh, she was with the Household Movers Conference. She was with the Rubber Manufacturers Association and came to work at MEMA as the head of government affairs. And the only guy that ran any part of the business that she knew anything about as far as the industry was concerned was heavy duty. So I benefited greatly uh, from Ann having uh, at the very beginning, a very, very solid understanding of the overall industry. So she helped us shepherd a few things through. Again, we were a little bit late in the game, putting the focus on stuff, but the stopping distance rule for trucks, uh, you may or may not be familiar with that. That was about a 10 year process. It was an HDMA council uh, with the assistance of government affairs office in Washington for MEMA uh, that made them really think very seriously because the initial intent of that particular uh, piece of uh, regulation was uh, to get every truck to convert over to disc brakes, which was crazy. Um, and we managed to show that there were alternatives to disc brakes because there were a lot of people making disc brakes, but there were also a lot of people that uh, had huge uh, interest in uh, the engineering and manufacturing of drum brakes um, and a lot of other things that went along with that. So our role in Washington, uh, that's kind of encapsulated uh, in what I just said, was making sure that the policymakers uh, there really understood the implications of everything that they were working on. And there have been some crazy ideas that have come up where uh, either on the technology side or uh, the practical side uh, um, where we have been able to provide enough information for them to cause them to rethink what it is that they were doing. Biggest achievement that we made though, was working with uh, NHTSA, which is the safety division of the Department of Transportation uh, and uh, getting it so that we were rather than just working uh, lawyer to lawyer, we were working engineer to engineer. So we had a very good council, the heavy duty brake manufacturers council that worked with engineers at NHTSA on implementing, uh, designing and implementing the stopping distance rule, uh, making it so that it wasn't impossible. In a nutshell, uh, and to close on that particular thought, uh, the best explanation that I ever heard came from a non-engineer person um, that was involved in the discussions with them and said, uh, you know, you guys want a heavy truck to stop at 275 feet. We can do that it's the 80,000 pounds behind it that doesn't stop that fast. Um, and um, that stopped everybody and made them think about 
you know, maybe we might want to consider physics and all of this too. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was a good accomplishment, but uh, you know, so we worked an awful lot on the government affairs side of things and uh, they're very, very firmly entrenched now as uh, experts. We actually hired a chief technology officer, um, brilliant guy, uh, Brian Darty, uh, works very closely with the Washington office and making sure that when technology is being discussed uh, at the uh, at the regulatory or at the legislative level, that the people that are involved understand exactly what it is that they're talking about. And he's wonderful. He's able to, he's one of these guys that's kind of scary smart. I'm sure you've got a couple of people working for you like that. Um, but he has the ability to be able to explain things in layman terms. In other words, when he explains how something works to me, I understand it. Um, and I'm, I'm just a little bit above the coloring book requirement uh, uh, level on that kind of stuff, but he's done a, a fantastic job. So MIMO overall and HDMA overall have done, I think a pretty good job of staying focused on what their core uh, strengths were. Uh, one of them is on the government affairs side. The other one is staying focused on important issues to the supplier community, uh, rather than trying to go broadly after the entire industry and fix everything that's broken in it. Uh, listening to the suppliers and advancing uh, the ideas uh, that they have uh, to improve their businesses and bottom lines, as well as the overall industry. Well, I know in today's you know political climate, it's great that we have organizations actually talking about physics, basic math, and just just the way <laughs> things work, right? That really that really helps. Just in all seriousness, though, that it's appreciated. Um, and I, I think you know, and we're going to talk a little bit here about you know current challenges and future challenges with supply chain and electrification and all these other things. Uh, but going back, you made a comment about oh four, oh seven, ten, and even thirteen. Um, and I think a lot of people that are in the industry now weren't weren't there in 04 when that whole thing kind of went down at first. And when you look back at it, we had to have all new ultra low sulfur diesel distributed everywhere. We had to have new engine oils that came into and came into account. We had to have new technology that was put into every diesel engine produced in North America. And by the way, we, 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 we had, of every engine. Yeah, and we had to go train everybody on on all these things. I mean, you're right. That was. I, I wasn't involved on that side. I was just working at a dealership selling trucks and complaining about it. So that must have been a monumental thing that just kind of had this big ripple effect across the industry when when it all kind of went down, I guess, in the late 90s, early 2000s when it first happened. Yeah, it was discussed for several years before uh, all of that. Uh, you mentioned heavy-duty dialogue a little bit earlier. Uh, one of the primary things that uh, the HDMA Board of Directors did was put together the heavy-duty dialogue programs. I was engaged in that for quite some time. And um, we probably over a three year period of time had uh, six or seven different segments uh, of the dialogue programs, which was held annually in Atlanta at that time that dealt with the challenges involved with the uh, implementation of the new regulations. And we had real experts. We had the people running the engine uh, side of the business for Caterpillar and uh, Cummins Engine Company both sitting on a panel together. They were a two-person panel with a moderator. Uh, we all kept praying for a cat fight uh, when that occurred, but we didn't. They were just basically relating the uh, the challenges and what they were doing to address them. Um, we uh, had the heads of engineering from the uh, from the engine companies and the truck companies and uh, panels uh, and had a very good journalist. Uh, you weren't around uh, the industry at the time, but Jim Windsor, uh, worked for uh, Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine. Uh, it was a, was one of these true old-fashioned journalists where he asked nothing but stinging questions. 
and managed to, uh, and we didn't have it recorded at the time, but managed to get one of the uh, uh, legendary cat fights that occurred between all of those guys telling each other how crappy their uh, solution for the problems were and all of that type of thing. And then it did result to shouting and uh, somebody sitting on a kill switch because profanity started to come out uh, during all of that. It was, it was, uh, it was an unbelievable period of time. Uh, and uh, it all resulted from a couple of people driving through the Washington DC area, not being able to understand why when a truck took off from a stop sign, there was black smoke that came out of the stacks. Uh, Ultra sulfur diesel fuel took care of that. That was all you saw was particulate um, yeah. sulfur burning going up into the atmosphere. Um, and all the rest of it took it down to uh, the emissions of NOx and particulate matter down to a point where um, the story is, and I guess that it was actually true at the time, that you could park a Class 8 truck in downtown Los Angeles and the exhaust air was cleaner than the ambient air uh, in LA. Um, so now they want to go to electric vehicles to solve uh, even more of the problems, which you know, we can we can talk about that uh, sometime later. But uh, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, that we're dealing with uh, not necessarily a political issue, other than by definition, politics play into it, where there is one side versus the other side, um, not having anything to do with political parties, but. Uh, one side insisting that all of these things need to be done and the other side saying, we don't need to do those things. This thing will fix that problem. Um, and, uh, you know, that's going to be the next great debate uh, is uh, if they start working on lobbying Congress and the administration about eliminating uh, diesel engines like they've done in, uh, in Europe um, and convince some of the truck companies to do that. Uh, the only way they're ever going to be able to get everything to convert over to electric power is is by uh, legislating and then providing financial incentives to be able to do it. Yeah. So I'm glad that one is up to my successor as far as the next fight is concerned, uh, because the the through 010 and 13 uh, regulations, as well as the newer ones that are coming in right now, um, uh, that took up a huge amount of resources as far as the uh, association was concerned. So you're walking around HDAW this week. I obviously <clears throat> shaking, shaking a lot of hands, kiss a lot of babies, doing doing the things that Tim does there. You know, what are you hearing from manufacturers? Is supply chain? I mean, that's, that's what we hear from our customers all the time. I can't get this part. I can't buy new trucks. Used truck prices have doubled in value. You know, is it supply chain? Is that the number one thing that you were hearing at, at HDAW last week? Or is it some other things? What's tip of everyone's tongue currently? Well, we've been involved as an overall organization in the shortage of, uh, of chips and microprocessor parts and all of that type of thing. Uh, for the last couple of years, I've been just amazed that it turned into a crisis in the last, uh, according to the news media, uh, in the last few months. Um, but that one has caused an awful lot of trouble. And the reason that it caused a lot of trouble, in, and I'm glad to see that there's some work being done in this particular area, is that the, the companies that did all of that manufacturing took it all offshore to low-cost countries. Uh, it is why you can buy a laptop for you know seven hundred dollars now, uh, where I think my first one was about ten thousand. Yep. Um, is that the stuff is all being done first of all in mass production, second of all being done in low-cost countries, uh, <clears throat> third of all almost all of it being done robotically. Um, so there's very little labor involved in all of it, and the. Um, uh, I don't know how far you want me to go into that particular uh, end of things, but 
uh, that's probably the biggest single challenge for anybody that's involved in any technology, which is almost everything uh, on a truck now. Um, the supply chain issue, uh, we put a great big hole in uh, the supply chain uh, for two, three months uh, in the beginning of COVID. Uh, the matter of the lack of flexibility in the overall system as far as supply chain is concerned has caused uh, uh, an awful lot of uh, challenges for a lot of segments of the uh, of the overall industry. Little things, um, you know, they made it so that it was illegal to use anything uh, older than a 2010 truck in California. If you've been out to the docks in Long Beach or in LA, uh, you know, the, the fourth owner, you know, the second, third and fourth owner uh, of a truck, the fourth owner of the truck is the guy that hauls container chassis with a, with a container on it over to the rail yard and does about 25 or 30 of those a day. He does not do that with a $120,000 truck. He does that with the cheapest thing he can get his hands on. They eliminated all of those guys um, by in, enacting that. So companies had to buy uh, newer trucks and individuals had to buy newer trucks that they're going to participate in it at that level. Um, the other thing was, is the union issues uh, where they were requiring at one point, I don't know if they still are, but they were requiring union drivers uh, in certain aspects of it. So the docks are a problem. Uh, the nearly 100 boats that have been parked offshore for a while waiting to get in is a problem. Um, being able to handle all of the logistics from the docks uh, to the uh, other end of the country uh, has been a real issue. But probably the biggest single issue, and this is my own opinion, is that we have shipped so much manufacturing out of the country uh, that we, we don't have the ability to rapidly respond to anything. And we're paying the price for it now. Uh, where it used to take two weeks to get something done here, uh, it could take two months because of transit and all the rest of those types of things, lot sizes that are required overseas. Um, so I was happy to see that there's some initiatives in place right now to bring a lot of that manufacturing back here. I think it makes financial sense for companies to do that type of thing, but we've shunned off all of the commodity type items to offshore and we do the specialty type items uh, here. Uh, you'd never, for example, be able to ship your business off to a foreign country to have it done uh, because you require a local expertise and things like that. And that's what the majority of the manufacturing that's being done in the United States is being done that way, either that or by the weight of the product. Makes no sense to make an axle in China and send it back over here. Um, so those are being done here, but uh, uh, the supply chain thing is, uh, is 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 really something that you could probably blame COVID for some of it, but I think the uh, um, what happens when there's a disruption uh, in a global supply chain that uh, everything is trying to come back into this country is is probably the the root cause of all of those problems, and that's a gross oversimplification of all of it. But uh, we need to be making more things here. Uh, I don't know if you have kids, but uh, we have two girls that played traveling soccer. Uh, and for several years, we drove to every small town all over the Southeast of the United States. The one thing that I noticed in every town that we went through was uh, there was always at least one or two empty factory buildings. Uh, there was always an empty Ford dealership and an empty General Motors dealership um, that occurred. And uh, you know those are unrelated as far as the cause behind them, but uh, um, We've gone uh, the bigger than bigger is better route uh, with almost everything. And the, the small manufacturers are not playing as big a role. And I think you'll see in the future, a lot of that stuff coming back and it's gonna be with entrepreneurs doing those types of things. 
as many chips as you use, you should be getting into the chip manufacturing business. You, you, you know, we should. I mean, it, it was really frustrating. We spent years developing this little Bluetooth chip and yeah. we, we have distributed through Dorman. And Dorman literally, we thought it was a year supply. They sold out 90 days. They give us a PO, you know, seven figure PO. We're giving high fives. Supply chain, right? They're telling us a year to get more product in and we're working through all those things. Um, and then it's really, I mean, there's a lot of variables there and I'm really excited. We have the chief of the port of LA is coming on the, one of my episodes here pretty soon. So I'm curious to pick his brain a little bit on, on when it's going to get better and, and everything there. Yeah, we had him at ATAW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to get him on here. Um, and then, you know, it, it's, it's other things. Notice he didn't show up in person. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said it was because of COVID restrictions. We all gave him a hard time, obviously. Right. He was going to get beat up over there. Um, so one of the other things that I, I've noticed is a situation like we have with um, a certain engine manufacturer. They make DEF sensors. The DEF sensors are unavailable due to supply chain and thousands of trucks are down to derate some. And all of a sudden, no aftermarket can make them because they're trademarked and patented and, and all these things. So it's a really interesting time and place for all of us to be into. Well, with all of that said, I just, again, want to thank Tim for coming on. Uh, it's been great talking to him, picking his brain, seeing where the industry's been, seeing where it's going. If you're trying to contact him or you want to look him up, uh, you can definitely go on LinkedIn. Tim Krause, look for him on there. He's all over LinkedIn, easy to find guy. Uh, at the end of the day, though, it, you got to keep in mind, this is an industry constantly evolving and changing. We got through 04, we got through 07, we got through 10, we got through 13. We're going to get through electrification. We're going to get through the supply chain. Our industry always figures it out. There's no doubt. And like as Tim was sharing, sometimes it's screaming and profanity and yelling and everything else going on. But we do work through these problems. That's what we do in our industry. So with all that said, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Uh, like, comment, share. Anything you can do helps us to grow our audience at all. It is very much appreciated. And as we end every episode, it's just not diagnostics. It's diagnostics done right. And we'll see you on the next episode.